Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1949 James Cagney film White Heat. So let's step into Baird Fisher's Video Store. Baird, how you doing? Top of the world, Sam. <laughs> That's a good way to a good way to start. Um, you had mentioned that this uh, that Cagney is one of your favorites, right? Right. Okay. Um, so what is your history? Well, we'll get to Cagney in a minute, but what is your history with this film specifically? Because this is a very yeah. James Cagney film. A very James Cagney film, yeah. And I, uh, I would have seen it, ah, gosh, I don't know, probably uh, later, later in my acquaintance with Cagney. I, don't, I didn't see this early on, so I'm going to guess probably sometime in the, probably sometime in the 90s, um, just because I, just, uh, I love the Cagney gangster uh, persona. So yeah, I would have caught up with it on video. So where did, you, where did you first encounter Cagney? How did he become a favorite of yours? Well, you know, this, this, is, this is where I date myself, Sam, as I've said several times before. You know, most of my acquaintance with old Hollywood films was uh, because that's what they showed on TV when I was a kid. And so um, I did a lot of, a lot of babysitting uh, in my teens, uh, both for my siblings and for other people for money. And so I had a lot of evenings where I'm just, you know, looking to see what they're showing on TV. And I just remember, I don't know, maybe I was 13, 14, somewhere in there. And I just came upon this uh, TV showing of Angels with Dirty Faces. And I had no idea who Jimmy Cagney was. I barely knew anything about gangster films. And I was just completely, completely entranced. And um, I, I guess that for me, it, there's something about Cagney's energy. There's something about, you know, especially in that film, he's got some, he's got some signature lines that he gives um, I don't know. It just it just drew me in in, in a way that uh, I don't think any, any very few films had before that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you you said energy because I wrote three words down that make that that make me feel like he he's unique in a kind of way. And one of the words I wrote was energy. He is on a different level than everybody else in this movie. Um, the when when he's in scenes in this movie, there there is a kind of energy that isn't in any. And and I like other parts of this movie but he is a force of nature um the other things i wrote were his physicality there's something mm -hmm. about even the shape of his body he seems like i assume he's a small person he seems mm -hmm. physically not not to be a, a very large person but but built like but there's something thick about his body and there's so there's something intimidating about him even though he's little and then oddly i wrote his head i think he must have a very large head which i think a lot of um, that's sort of the shape of a movie star, especially a male movie star is they're often not very large, but their heads are very big. He's got a very big, distinct, blocky head and great and great like curly hair. There's something just about the way he looks and what he does with his face, the way he scrunches his face like like he he's acting with every uh, like every nerve in his body, I feel like is part of the performance. Yeah, that's a great way to characterize him. He, yeah, he's expressive in every way. He's he's vocally expressive. As you said, he's physically expressive. He's expressive. He's facially expressive. Um, he was a great. He was uh, very athletic, as you know. He got a start in vaudeville. Uh, great dancer and singer. Um, but also, he was a decent athlete. He was a good boxer. In fact, he wanted to go into boxing professionally, but his mother didn't want him to do that. I totally believe that looking at him. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and as well as uh, he played uh, baseball as well. So, yeah, very, very athletic. No, no formal training in acting whatsoever. Uh, just kind of fell into it. He had evidently almost a photographic memory. 
Uh, and so he was able to learn his lines really, really easily. He just, he was all, he was like, he was born a consummate professional. It's just amazing. So where does this movie, and I read, I read uh, quite a bit about this, but where did the, where does this movie fit into Cagney's career? Like who was he in 1949? Yeah. So, you know, Cagney's career, you know, his big, his rise to stardom was with Warner brothers in the, in the 1930s. And he made a total of 10 gangster films for them in, in the 1930s. And that really became kind of um, his signature role. Uh, he was a big box office star. By the end of the 1930s, he was uh, surpassed only by Gary Cooper in terms of, of earnings. Uh, and by the end of the 1930s, he was kind of itching to break out of those stereotypical roles. He had played a few comic. He was a great comic actor. He played some comic roles. And as, of course, you know, he was George M. Cohan in 1942, Yankee Doodle Dandy for which he got an Academy Award. And so he really spent the 40s trying to, uh, not playing any gangster roles, really trying to expand his, his repertoire. He was capable of so much. Um, his brother had formed a production company uh, and then they basically worked with Universal Studios to make productions, but they weren't doing particularly well. And Cagney kind of needed to be frank, he kind of needed to come back. Uh, and so Warner Brothers, uh, he went back to Warner Brothers for White Heat, which would have been his first gangster film in 10 years. And it really was in his, in his last, but it really was a kind of deliberate return for him. Although it's a very different kind of gangster that he plays in White Heat than he played in the 30s. Yeah, I, I believe the quote from his is he, he did it for a five letter word that starts with M and ends in Y uh, was white because it, it seemed like there was tension between uh from Cagney towards Warner's and from Warner's towards Cagney with this movie. Um, so they were not necessarily partners that wanted to be partners, but in spite of that uh, came up or, or made this, you know, made this film. I will say I, my history with James Cagney is probably close to what he would want, which is I, if this makes you feel better, also encountered him randomly watching TV. I, as a kid, I stumbled across uh, Yankee Doodle Dandy right when it was starting it was on TMC or, or something like that and was kind of I was like what is this and was my brother and I were watching was drawn in um, and that's my that was for a long time my only experience with Cagney um, so I always thought of him as like a song and dance man because <laughs> he's great in that movie that is a phenomenal performance um, now what's interesting is for me the the, the baggage that I take with Cagney isn't Cagney as a gangster, but what I brought to this movie was Cagney as this person obsessed with family, which this movie also has because, because George M. Cohan, there's so much about like his mother and his father and his sister. And like, what is his relationship to them going to be and breaking away from that? Or can he break away from that? So like, that was my baggage coming to this was thinking about that element of Cagney, which plays in nicely into this movie because, um, Cody Jarrett's connection to family is a very important, uh, a very important piece of this movie. And, uh, but, you know, before I let this slip away, Sam, just kind of back to Cagney's relationship to Warner Brothers. Um, you know, Warner Brothers was one of the studios that had no pretensions to being artistic. You know, you watch the opening of uh, MGM and you get the line and art, you know, art for art's sake and all that. Uh, but somebody pointed out that something I was reading, even the logo for Warner Brothers looks like a kind of uh, uh, stamp. It looks like a kind of industrial stamp or logo, you know, and and Jack and Warner and his brother were kind of famously penny pinching. And they really ran the studio like a production line. And people had to be on, on, on uh, in the studio from nine to five. It really was run much more like a business than a lot of the other 
lot of the other studios. And so Cagney actually won a, a significant lawsuit against them in the, in the 1930s because they had broken his contract with him. He had a contract that said he only needed to make four movies a year and they made him how to make five. And so he actually sat out. It's kind of like like a, like a Kurt Flood in the reserve clause in baseball. He actually sat out for a year while the lawsuit unfolded and he won the lawsuit. Uh, he only had to make two movies a year and he had his choice of, he had his choice of roles. And he was actually instrumental in forming the Screen Actors Guild uh, as well. So um, he had really won a significant battle with Warner Brothers. So that kind of made it tough for him to go back there in 1949. And he said in his retirement, after he retired in 62, that every time he thought of going back, he thought of Jack Warner. <laughs> but, you know, he was offered the role as uh, Dr. Doolittle uh, in this mid 60s film. And he, he, I don't know what part, but he was offered a part in Godfather part two. Uh, which he he turned down. Hmm, that's really interesting. Um, before as we get into the movie itself, can you say a little bit? You said this is sort of a it's a return to gangster films, but it's also a departure from maybe the gangster films of the '30s. What would have what would have a uh, Cagney's gangster persona been, or what would we have seen if we had watched, say, Angels with Thirty Faces or Public Enemy? Yeah, the you know the persona of the '30s gangster was very much uh, it was a um, a socioeconomic indictment of crime. So typically, the 1930s gangster uh, is a product of his environment, and so the reason why he's turned out bad or badly is because of his upbringing and various kind of social forces. So in um, in Angel Dirty Faces, in fact, you early on in the film you have Cagney and Pat O'Brien with whom he made nine films. They're, they're trying to escape from the police and uh, one of them gets away and one of them doesn't. And as a result, one of them becomes a gangster and the other becomes a priest. So there's a, there's a strong emphasis on um, kind of environment as destiny. And also, as we saw with um, Scarface, a very strong effort to uh, demythologize the gangster. So at the end of Angel of Dirty Faces, Rocky, played by uh, Cagney, famously goes to the electric chair as a, as a coward. Or when he dies as Tom Powers in The Public Enemy, um, he collapses in, into the gutter and says, I ain't, I ain't so tough. Uh, or you used to be a big shot at the end of the Roaring Twenties. So there's this effort to say, you know, the criminal is formed by these social forces. And let's not forget that they crime doesn't pay. They get it in the end. Um, Cody Jarrett is a totally different animal uh, in that respect. He's a psychopath or a sociopath. Um, and this, of course, reflects, as you go into the 40s, it reflects the Freudian influence on films. So he's shaped by his relationship to his mother. Uh, he has these episodes with headaches that are both physical and psychological. And he's not been made by society. He's been made, you might say, by his, by his genes um, yes, his mother is an upbringing influence, but it's also a psychological fixation. And, and there's, no, there's no effort at the end of this film to, to condemn him, uh, at least not at a social level. It's like he's not, he's not symptomatic of a social problem. He is very much kind of an individual. One of the really, really interesting comments on the film that I read says that in some ways, the film has a lot of similarity to the uh, to Universal Studios horror films. And... Uh, compare the end of White Heat with the end of Frankenstein. And it's almost as though Cody Jarrett is a monster and he roams the countryside at large and ultimately he has to be, uh, he has to be reeled in. But as with the monster, you feel both antipathy, but at the same time, a kind of sympathy. And that's what I found really powerful about this character, right? I mean, Cody Jarrett's a 
terrible, terrible person, but I kind of like him. Um, he's fascinating at the same time. Yeah, no, and 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 you know, part of it is he is Cagney's very charismatic. I mean, you buy that he starts this movie with one gang, and while in prison, constructs a whole new gang. Like like when they're doing jobs at the end, that's none of the guys from the beginning. Like that is that's a whole new thing he puts together. Um, I, I think the the monster movie thing is really. Uh, I think that's a really good point. There's definitely moments in this movie, especially kind of in the middle of the movie when, uh, when Verna is trying to escape from big Ed and she's, that just feels like a horror movie and she mm-hmm. encounters the monster and we have to see her, you know, deal with how do, how do I, how do I wrestle with the monster in both physical and mental and psychological and story ways? Like, like, like there, there is definitely a moment in here where it just, it just feels like a horror movie. And I think there are moments when it feels a bit like a noir as well. Um, uh, certainly a lot of the ways those scenes are shot, but also she's a, she's a kind of a femme fatale where you could argue, argue the mother is a femme fatale uh, as well. So uh, as we, as we jump into this movie, I just need to say one of the things that struck me right away um, that they told me that this was going to be a little something different from what I think of as a gangster movie is the opening shots that appear under the credits, I honestly thought I started the wrong movie. I was like, is this a Western? Cause like all of a sudden it's like, we're clear. We're not in an urban set. We're not in New York or Chicago where I'm used to seeing these things. And I'm seeing kind of like Western desert stuff. And I thought, is this, I honestly thought that I start the wrong movie, um, which is great. So, so, so there is this kind of um, sense of like, okay, this is going to be different. And it's, it's um, there, there was a really great, did you read the the Matt Zoller sites um, yeah, article on Roger Roger Ebert? He did a, a talked a lot about how this movie, without yelling it at you, is this very you know post war American movie mm-hmm. that it's about gangsters who are kind of still being nineteen thirties gangsters, thinking yes. about it that way, but they're out of time, um, you know, and especially so much of this movie is about something I loved is about police procedure and technology. Mm -hmm. This is a movie a a lot about that. And there's a great line um, from early on where uh, Cody says when, when, when they realize that the the cops have pegged the train job on them, that he says, Oh, somebody must've must've tipped them off. And Verna says with you, it's always somebody must've tipped them off. Uh, Never that the cops are smart. And it's like, and that, that sets something up that yes. it's like the only way we could get caught is if somebody, you know, if, if somebody had to turn and it's like, no, in fact, actually you're in a world where the police have technologies that I didn't, I don't know if they existed in 1949 or not. I, that, that, that was such an interesting moment. Cause I, when I watched this the second time that jumped out at me, that line mm-hmm. when, when she said that, because that really does say something about uh, how Cody views the life of crime versus uh, versus the world that he's actually living in. So I think moving it to the West gives you that feel as well, too, that we're, we're in a different place. Well, you know, the, the other way in which we're in a different place is, you know, when we talked about Scarface, we talked a little bit about um, the machine gun expressing uh, the, the rise of technology. And here you get the oscillator and the radio and these and you get the police, you know, kind of um, triangulating their uh, their their uh, location. So it's kind of an interesting shift, even in police uh, technology. I also love how this movie um, I think this movie is one of the best like constructed movies for something we often praise, which is 
economy. Mm -hmm. Um, This is a movie that is under two hours long and it is just set piece after set piece after set piece. It feels like multiple genres. It feels like every 20 minutes we're in a new movie that is like a sequel to the one we were just watching because it changes from, so I wrote some of these down. So we have a train robbery. We have a police procedural. We have multiple car chases. We have a prison movie. We have a prison break movie. We have a heist movie. And it's just like, like all, it just goes from thing to thing to thing. And this movie feels like, like when I got done with it, I thought that had to be like a three hour movie. So much, so much ground gets covered and it doesn't feel like the filmmaker is in a hurry to get things done but they somehow managed to cover all of that ground. You know, I was thinking if this, if, if somebody were to have pitched this in 2021, um, I mean, this would, this would end up being probably two or three seasons of a Netflix show or an HBO <laughs> show, because you really could do the like, okay, here's our four or five episodes on the train robbery. Yep. And here's yep. our this. And then here's our, maybe our prison season. And we're going to get more into the psychology, but but this sort of took all of that and said, what if this was just a movie that covered all of that ground? Um, and I, I was really, really impressed by the structure of this movie in that way. Well, that, that, that means I should say a little something about the director, Raul Walsh, uh, whom we have not uh, seen any other any of his earlier films. Um, Andrew Saris, who is uh, one of the more perceptive um, film critics and one of the um, proponents of the auteur theory, has an interesting comment about contrasting Walsh with a couple of other uh, directors we have watched, John Ford and uh, Howard Hawks. And he says uh, that uh, the heroes in Ford's films, he says, are sustained by tradition. You think about Ford's Westerns in particular. And Hawks's heroes are sustained by uh, professionalism. Um, I'm not sure how much we've seen that in the Hawks films we've watched. Um, But he says the heroes of Walsh are sustained by a feeling for adventure. He says the Walsh hero is not so much interested, interested in how or why, but interested in the what. And so he said he talks about Walsh's films being genuinely exciting. Uh, and I think that's exactly what you've captured. And, and I should mention that um, Walsh directed in 1915, he started out in silence. He directed a film called Regeneration or The Regeneration, which was the first full length gangster film uh, at 72 minutes and co-starred Anna Q. Nilsson who was uh, one of the waxworks in uh, Sunset Boulevard playing Oh my uh, goodness, yes. Cards. So, yeah. He also is the person who discovers John Wayne, right? Yes, he does. And renames so, him John Wayne. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, so he when, made, he, uh, when he made the um, uh, the Big Trail, 1930, which was kind of uh, one of those seminal epic westerns, which I will confess I have never seen. So when this movie starts um, and we start with the the train robbery sequence, um, I'm a big fan uh, w- through doing this series of almost a hundred movies. I've become a big fan of like looking at how a filmmaker starts a film. Mm. Like we talked last week about this amazing opening shot that Hawks uses to tell us all these things about this movie, even without introducing us to characters we're going to end up seeing again in the film. Um, this train robbery scene is so interesting because it is sort of like it is definitely like a, in media's res like before we meet a character we are part of a train robbery mm-hmm. like like we recognize Cagney because we know he's the star of the film but nobody else in this car we don't know who they are there are people who are already on the train and you're not sure are they part of this setup or are they part of something else so like we don't see any planning it just happens mm-hmm. um, but what's great about this is that 
We also learned so much about Cody Jarrett in his actions without without learning anything else about him. In fact, we only learn his name because somebody slips up. You know, but but like like things that we learn, we learn that he's willing to take lives. That this is going to be. I mean, there are four people who are killed. Actually, ends up being a fifth person that's killed in um, in this train robbery. We see that he's the one in charge, right? People are talking to him. People are looking to him for direction. We see that this is intricately planned, right? There are mm. people on the train, off the train. Everybody has a specific job, and the job, for the most part, works the way that they plan it. Um, and that he believes that you should have no loose ends, right? So he ends up killing those two guys just because they heard his name. Yep. Um, you know, so like, so we learned so much about him and we learned that even learning his name is going to come at a cost. Uh, and I, I love that, you know, so before we even kind of get character introductions or learn anything else, that scene tells us so much. And it's very, I mean, a train robbery is always exciting, right? And it was, so it's a very exciting scene and you, you learn a lot. <laughs> it's also a train robbery scene that all includes a car chase. If you want to think about it, yes. that way. Because you've got the car chasing after the train. So he kind of throws everything he, he can into it. And when the, uh, I mean, he, and, and even when the, the gang, the one gang member um, gets scalded by the, the steam, like even that, I, I love that it like, it both goes well, except they need to use the explosives to blow the train open. They didn't, they didn't, plan on necessarily having to do that they, mm-hmm. they 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 kind of lose somebody in it yeah. um yeah i like i just think i just think that's that's kind of an amazing uh, an amazing piece um and then we get to the then we go to the cabin and we we kind of get, start to get our character introductions we learn about ma because she's the one gang well i guess two, one of the two gang members who aren't there um, we learn about Verna. We learn about Big Ed. Right, that scene. Then we we see everything else play out. This is also when we start to learn about his. Um, he's where he has his first sort of headache episode, and we you know we get the uh, the theme of the the top of the world theme um, when they when they, so like that. Those two scenes have laid out so much of where this is going. Um, I, I found the character of of Ma Jarrett so fascinating. Um, because at first you don't necessarily, uh, you know, it, it was interesting because I was thinking about the mother in Scarface, how mm. she is like completely opposed to what her son is doing and wants to keep people away from it. And, you know, and, and, at, and in that first scene, you're like, oh, Ma is, is supportive of what he's doing. She's part of it. And increasingly, when, when they go into the other room, when he has this episode, you start to think maybe she's the one in charge, actually. And as the movie goes on, you start to feel more and more like, oh, she's what's holding this together. I find that character really fascinating. That also reminds me too of another difference in the thirties films, um, Sam, because, you know, in Scarface uh, and little Caesar and to a certain extent, public enemy, you get these characters who are um, the gangsters are either immigrants themselves or the children of immigrants. And so you get a little bit of a xenophobic xenophobic flavor. It's like part of the reason why these people are lawless is because they are, they are um, from another country, and you get that explicitly uh, in Scarface. But here, Cody and his mother are, as far as we can tell, completely um, American, uh, and there's nothing about them that suggests that somehow they're bringing in a uh, some kind of a foreign influence. But they are simply homegrown uh, killers. And in that in that cabin scene, we also see. Um, we, we learn a little bit about Verna. We get one of my favorite lines from the movie. That's both a great line. And it tells you something about Cody. It tells you that Cody understands 
Um, he understands Big Ed. Big Ed is not going to be a surprise to him. So he says, uh, if I turn my back long enough for Big Ed to put a hole in my head, I'd have a hole in my head, <laughs> which is just a really, really good line. Uh, but it, it does sort of say like, okay, there, you know, there's going to be tension within the gang and probably a double cross in the gang. But mm. you also know Cody already knows that. So he's also strategically already out ahead of it by calling it out in front of Ed to just be like, you know, Ed's a guy with ideas. He's going to take his shot and to just say it in front of everyone um, is, uh, is pretty amazing. Uh, I want, maybe we should talk about Verna because she actually was somebody who um, I really, really liked this character. Cause um, my, f- my fear in movies like this is that the, uh, the, the sort of girlfriend wife character ends up being this person who's kind of on the periphery, maybe doesn't have a lot of agency. And actually Verna has tons and tons of agency. And she is, um, you know, we learn that, that she basically blows whichever way the winds of kind of money and power and protection go. And we see her flip back and forth. Um, and so, so she, she is connected to this gang, but she's ready to turn on. I mean, she turns on Cody when he goes to jail for Ed then she sells Ed out to Cody and says, Cody's the one who killed his mother. And then at the very end, she goes to the cops and is willing to sell out Cody to the cops. Like, she's just like, all right, what angle do I have now? Um, and I, I, I thought that, I thought that performance was great. I thought I really liked that that character um, was not somebody who was just sort of tagging along or, or sort of, you got the sense that she was forced into this life, but she's actually as much as Ed is climbing, Verna is climbing. Well, and she's not that far removed from uh, the character she played in Best Years of Our Lives um, in, in, so, in, in some respects. You know, Dana Andrews' un, unhappy wife, who was ambitious that he wasn't more, who was at uh, this point, he wasn't more ambitious. I think it's a really good point, um, Sam. I had forgotten her character, to be frank. Um, I, I had forgotten that she does have so much agency and she is so kind of key to the plot uh, throughout the film. And what's, what's interesting is the way that it's, it's like Cody knows that she's dynamite. And, and, you know, you expect, you expect him at some point to completely dump her. And yet it's like he, he kind of thrives on that tension with her. Uh, and, and he also um, enables Cagney to do what Cagney d- did in so many of his gangster films, which is um, engage in some act of violence against, against a woman. Um, he famously, of course, did that in The Public Enemy when he shoved the half grapefruit into Mae Clark's uh, face. Although as an aside, he always said that Clark Gable got there first because Clark Gable in a, in a film the year before actually punched, uh, I think it was Joan Blondell, I can't remember. Um, but then, you know, of course, he gets to shove her, uh, shove Virginia Mayo off a chair. And evidently those touches were Cagney's own improvisations. Um, Raul Walsh gave him a lot of leeway on the set to kind of do things the way he wanted to do them. And so I think he knew that if this is Jimmy Cagney playing a gangster, he's got to do something physical to a woman at, at, at some point. Well, and what's interesting about the way that she's set up from the very beginning is you know, you sort of, you sort of wonder, is she going to play a role in this falling apart? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, because, because she is so active and so, I mean, from the very beginning, she's, you know, she and she and Ed are sharing looks even before Cody leaves. Like, like so there's this sense of like, what is, what is the role that she's going to play in this? And then when you get to the very end, she 
kind of doesn't really actually factor into it, which is why you, like you said, you could forget about that character because his downfall isn't ultimately isn't, isn't through her. Um, it, but it, but instead, and this, this is going back to your, your thing about Ma as sort of like a femme fatale, like, like his downfall in part is that he has this deep trust in, in his mother and family. And when his mother dies, uh, another character we haven't mentioned who is central to this movie and in some ways, a point of view character, Vic Pardo becomes the replacement, right? He's, he says to the trader, you know, I always, I always went 50, 50 with Ma, it's sort of like Vic is family now. And it's like, Oh wow. He has replaced somebody. He actually could trust with the first person he could find. I mean, it would sort it's sort of like Pardo's like a rebound from his mother dying. And it's like, okay, this is the next closest person I can trust. So I'm going to put all the trust that I put in my mother, I'm putting in him. And that is actually part of his downfall is like, like how he needs that other person. Yeah, well, and, and, and Pardo is quite explicitly the surrogate for his mother when he uh, eases his pain after his mm-hmm. um, headache attack on the, on, the, on the floor and make sure, as Ma did, make sure that other people don't see him exposing this moment of weakness. I think that's what really seals the deal for him. That, that's where Pardo becomes Ma. Yeah. So, so, you know, partway through this movie, I feel like it, it, the the point of view character shifts where i mean early in the movie this is a this is about cody jarrett um you get some of the like cop scenes or the t-men scenes and it's sort of like with um with public and or um excuse me with scarface i was sort of wondering like well how much are the cops going to factor into this and then it really becomes the middle chunk of this movie becomes a, a mole in prison movie where Pardo's the main character. He's who you're seeing this through. So it's like, you're getting a little bit more distant view of Cody. You're getting Cody through Pardo rather mm-hmm. than like pure Cody that you're getting at the beginning. Um, and I thought that switch was handled elegantly and mm-hmm. like uh, was really effective. So then when you get to the end, you actually have, uh, have Pardo Fallon, shooting at Cody, the fact that he's the one who they give the rifle to. And it's like, wait, these are my two main characters. And now they're they're who, who I've seen as deeply connected. And now they're, you know, kind of one-on-one enemies at that point. Well, and what's, what's really interesting about the way they handle the Pardo character is, I mean, it's very, it's, it's really intricate when you think about it, because, um, one of the other ways in which Pardo begins to develop a, a, an attraction for, for Cody is when he gets involved in the fight. So he won't be recognized by the con who knows him. So, right. I mean, that, that's sort of, that's um, you might say that's simply serendipitous and yet it helps play into, in, in, into his scheme. And then later on, of course, when he is exposed, I mean, I, I, I love the tension that's created, right? Because once you know that that guy's driving the truck, you know that at some point he's going to finger Pardo, but you don't know when or how. And, and they so wait a long time. I think it's brilliant the way. And then you think, oh, maybe he's going to get away with it. Maybe he's not going to get recognized. So, I, I, so the way that that extra tension, so it's kind of like you, you kind of have this plot arc within the larger plot arc. And I think what you also end up with is a kind of a, a kind of a double um, loyalty. Because obviously, you know, he's on the side of right and, and all that. So you're, you know, you're rooting for Pardo, but you've also got this fascination with Cody and you're kind of rooting for him. And you know that he's not going to win because it's a gangster film. But at the same time, you just are really curious about how it's ultimately going to play out. 
Well, and I love the scene where uh, when when Pardo is in solitary and they go through his mail and they put that they put the picture up. And so it's one of those it's it's a moment where you're in Pardo's point of view, sort of, but they pull you out of it when he's in when he's in solitary and he comes in and you know a thing he doesn't. You know what that picture is and he doesn't. And then there's the great moment when um when Cody says your plan failed, Pardo, and you can <laughs> yes. see this moment of like, oh no. And he's like, well, you still need to get your shots. And you you realize, like, oh, he, yeah, there all of this is like unspoken tension about. Did they did they catch him at that point? Um, so one of the things that I, a word that I've used already that I love about this movie, which again baffles me because it is this economical movie that moves very quickly, but it seems like Raul Walsh is very interested not just in showing you cops and robbers, but like actually getting into the procedure of it. Mm. I mean, the the fact that when they have the slow car chase with Ma Jarrett, like. Yeah. I I didn't know that was a, like I I've never seen that before in a movie where they're communicating three cars so it's like how do we follow this person without having them know and they're communicating the roads and they're mapping it out you know so it's like low tech high tech yeah uh, I like like that procedure is interesting um, you learn about the technologies a little bit. So like, I love that they get the, there's clearly a, the fingerprint database in Washington and they have the teletype machine that they're constantly getting information from, which is sort of showing you like, here's what the police have versus what Cody has, or even Cody's aware of, or the spectrograph with, you know, that they're getting into dirt samples. And it's just like, <laughs> like, like they see the cops. See, and so this is in some ways, you know, maybe, you know, pro, you know, U.S. law enforcement propaganda. It's like, look at all the stuff we have. Somebody's never going to get away. Um, you know, and then and 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 then the 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 pinnacle of this is the oscillator scene where you you actually watch them go through. I think four or five different times of sending in coordinates and watching these guys graph it out. I mean, this is telling you, like, look at how competent the the uh, federal law enforcement is. Like, they are going to get their guy. Uh, I, I love that. Yeah, it reminds me if you uh, if you recall, there's a the similar uh, kind of procedural scene at towards at the end of La Samurai uh, as well, where you have the police with their combination. I mean, it's kind of a combination of digital and analog technology at, at, the, at the same time, uh, or a, a, a mechanical and and physical. So you've got the oscillator, but then you've got the guys with the big board, you know, actually kind of mapping out the, or, or doing the actual uh, tri- triangul- triangulation. So, um, yeah, and I love the, the, as you mentioned, the slow chase scene with Ma. You know, first of all, I mean, Ma, from my earlier memory of the film, I expected to much more deeply dislike Ma, but I really found her kind of fascinating. And she's so, she's so canny, and yet, and yet she doesn't notice a very simple trick, right, when they put the little flag on, on, on the bumper. She doesn't notice that. But I just, you're right, that scene is so fascinating because I didn't know it's like a football play, you know, or a basketball play mapped out. You know, you're on car B, you're A, you're C, and now A takes C's position and B takes A's position. It, it, that, that in itself was just kind of fascinating to watch. In, in addition to the idea of a low a low speed car chase, which, which is really cool. Yeah. And actually I'm, I'm glad you brought up La Samurai because the other piece that this movie has, and, 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 and I feel like that does it as well is like, <clears throat> it actually shows how the criminals go about their stuff too. 
mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I, my, one of my favorite and most indelible scenes in Lost Samurai is the, the big um, chain of keys that he has mm-hmm. as he's slowly figuring out what key will start the car and that stuff. Um, so this movie has all kinds of Jarrett procedural stuff too. So, you know, the idea of killing witnesses, the idea of like what they do with the guy who's all bandaged up, like he has this plan about how can we keep things clean? Um, mm-hmm. You have not one, but two fully laid out prison break plans. Mm-hmm. I mean, like that's, I love a prison break and the fact that they're, that they, they sell you on one idea and then they actually do the, well, we're going to, we're going to use the gun and go that way. Um, <laughs> but Cody has a plan for that. And, and you could watch this and be like, Oh, I get how you could, how you could get out of prison. Like it actually is, seems, seems, seems to work. And then of course the Trojan horse plan, when he looks at that gas, uh, the gas truck and, you know, even, even, you know, says my mom used to tell me this story about this place <laughs> called Troy. And you all of a sudden realize like, that's kind of a brilliant plan yeah. to break some, to, to break people, um, into there. Uh, you know, and then even you even get, uh, a little bit of procedural stuff about money laundering. Like mm-hmm. when they talk about the trader, cause, cause it is interesting. Like if you steal this, you know, these treasury notes or things like this, like, it's not like you can just go around spending that. So you learn about the trade. And I love that it's very subtle, but although Cody, the, the movie ends with Cody in this, you know, exploding mushroom cloud blaze of glory. If you pay attention to the cops, they're not really after Cody. They're after the trader. Mm. This, this whole thing is about how do we get to the guy who's fencing the money, who's cleaning the money. Uh, in Europe, and so so that happens off camera, like like uh, um, Fallon offhandedly remarks, "Here's where you can find the guy you're looking for," and then that we don't see that. That's that's the real prize for them. And I love that piece of it as well. That that you know, f- for Cody, the whole world is about him, right? And he's on mm-hmm. top of that world at the end, and they want to get him, but like that's not the, that's not the real prize. The actor who plays the traitor, his name is escaping me right now, but he shows up uh, the next year in uh, Sunset Boulevard as Sheldrake, the uh, studio executive who won't produce William Holden's screenplay. Um, so I just loved, I, he's, a, he's a character actor. I really, I really enjoy whenever he shows up. Um, yeah, I'm going to also say something about the, the prison break scene. I, I love the, I, I just, again, it's, it's, it's the intricate plotting. You know, the police have got it all set up they're going to catch him. And so, cause they think the break is all set and then the break doesn't happen. And then the break does happen. It's, it, it's like the, the movie keeps playing with the various times when you think, I mean, you know, it's not going to end because it's got 20 more minutes to go, but you could see how in terms of plot, it could be ending. And yet they somehow managed not to end it with a plot twist that makes it even more interesting to drive it forward. So I just love the fact that, Oh, he's breaking out. No, he's not breaking out. We'll call it off. Hey, wait a minute. He just broke out. Um, I, I just, I think that's great plotting. Right. Cause you have to see, and you have to, you see how nimble the police are to say, okay, well now, now we, we're going to do this. We're going to get all these things in. Another thing that I love is how it, this movie seeds little things early. Like, um, you know, it seeds the idea of Bo Creel from the very beginning. And then you think it pays off at the infirmary mm. and then it really pays off. Like, like I didn't expect another return of Bo Creel. <laughs> Yeah, I thought I thought we already had played that part out, or the idea that when they're in the 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 workshop and the one guy brings the uh, the warden's radio to Pardo, and you mm. learn like, oh, he's good with radios, and then later when they're talking about the oscillator, one of the other cops says, oh, you could make this out of your bedside radio, which <laughs> is then later 
Verna has a broken radio and he, so that gives him the opportunity. But the part I love is we see him putting that radio in there. Mm -hmm. What I can assume he also does that night is breaks the radiator on the truck. Because the plan doesn't work, but you don't see that part. You only, you have to surmise that yourself to say, how did he know that was going to happen? It's like, well, clearly he emptied the radiator or did something so that they would have to stop so that he could leave the message. Yeah. And he, even the thing he says, you know, about like, he makes the crack about how dirty the restroom is to try to get the guy in there to look at the message. And yeah, like, I just love other movies would show you that stuff And this. It's Mm. It's all there, but you have to you have to kind of figure some of that stuff out. Um, you want to talk about the the this this movie has a a big ending set piece as well, um, which which sort of ties the pieces together. Now, again, in terms of economy, what blew me away about this was they're getting to that heist at the end, which is very exciting. And I looked at the the runtime that was left, and there was about fourteen minutes left. And I thought they're mm. going to do all of this in fourteen minutes. And it doesn't feel like they speed through it, mm-hmm. but again, all of that happens happens very, very, very quickly. Um, so, you know, we end with this, uh, you know, Cody blowing himself up, right, and and delivering the prom, the uh, sort of top of the world, which is, I guess, the I didn't know that that was from this movie, but that's a, that's a like a you know a famous movie line, yeah, and yeah. so it's one of those things where it's like, oh, I now see it in context what that meant. <laughs> um, uh, but then you end with like this mushroom cloud imagery as well. Again, putting this in, you know, um, sort of maybe speaking to kind of anxieties of the post-war world, uh, in, you know, in terms of things like that as well. Yeah, I, th- I think it's it's one of the earliest films I can think of that, that did that. It's a, it's a motif that shows up again in one of my favorite noirs, Kiss Me Deadly, which also has a kind of atomic explosion at, at, at the end. Um, which is really kind of a, it's, it's kind of a nice way of um, capturing the notion of Cody as kind of a larger than life character. Like, you know, when his, his self-immolation is also a reference to violence on a much larger scale. I don't think that makes, makes him necessarily um, symbolic, but it does kind of, it, it does kind of capture the sense of his bigger, that he's bigger than life. And it actually requires this, I have no idea how, how they shot these explosions, but it requires this kind of large scale destruction to actually finally take him down. And it's also as though you've got to be sure he's really dead dead. Um, otherwise he's the kind of, he's the kind of monster that might come crawling out of the wreckage. Well, it's, okay. It's interesting. You say the, the bigger than life part, because another thing I thought about watching this is and this is this is maybe a weird overstatement is that especially by the end of the movie Cody reminds me of like like I'm watching a Batman villain but not in a Batman movie like like he actually in some ways reminds me of when Jack Nicholson plays the Joker yeah. in Tim Burton's Batman like and I just thought oh partially I thought oh Cagney would have made a great like a great supervillain like like there is he has just this kind of manic energy at the end as well um and and and, it, and so so I think to your point like that explosion, you know, is part of like, like that seems like what you would see at the end, not of a cops and robbers movie, but at the end of like a, how do we take out the supervillain kind of, you know, kind of feeling. So it, it, it definitely reminded me of that. And it, I, I also think it's worth commenting again on Cagney, the actor that he was, he was so adroit that he could equally play villains and heroes. And he had no trouble playing kind of that full spectrum. And there's not a lot of actors that can really do that, that you would accept in almost any role. 
And, and I think about Cagney's career, and he really played almost any, any possible role and did it well. I do want to mention, just as a quick aside, another one of his really great later films is uh, where he plays Lon Chaney, Man of a Thousand Faces. Uh, and that he's wonderful in that. And, he, you know, and, and as the film suggests, he actually had kind of a physical resemblance to Lon Chaney. And he actually goes through all these sort of different versions of the characters that Chaney plays. And it really is a kind of, um, it's a kind of miniaturization of Cagney's career. Okay, I have I have one last question I want to ask you that's maybe unanswerable, but before we get to that, are there other things you want to talk about with this movie? Well, yeah, there's one kind of big hole that we haven't really talked about, or one big element of the film, and that is um, if the if the closing scene is famous, so too is the scene in the prison mess hall when Cagney uh, when Jody get, Cody gets the news of Bimas' death, um, and evidently the way i read about it is there were you know there were like 300 extras in, in 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 the in the scene and they didn't know what cagney was going to do and they were evidently truly terrified uh by by his by his outburst um and he said he was inspired for that for that scene by two different uh, memories one was he had visited a uh, an asylum for the criminally insane on ward's island when he was a boy and he remembered what he called the shrieks and the screams of those who were under restraint. And also uh, his father, uh, when his father was drunk, uh, he would also make those kinds of sounds. So he sort of channeled uh, those things in, into the scene. And that is probably one of, you know, if you had to put together five or six most famous Jimmy Cagney scenes, that would be definitely one of them. Well, and what's great about that scene is by the end of it, as they're dragging him away, he has become a very small child mm, cry, mm. crying. I just want to go. I just want to get out of here. Yes. You know, and it reminds you of the fact that again, part of his, part of his like criminal brilliance is he's the one who put himself in prison, you know? <laughs> and, 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 and there is just this sense of like, like, like that is such a, such a pure statement of, uh, of emotion. And, and I mean, childlike in the fact of it's sort of purity of just like, I just don't want to be here anymore. And what he's really saying, because he just found out his mother died, is like, you know, he's saying, I just want to be home again with Ma. That's mm -hmm. what he wants. Yes. And, yeah. and, and the way he delivers that, like he transforms multiple times in that scene mm -hmm. uh, as it's going through it. And yeah, I just think it's just a brilliant, brilliant performance. So here's my question. Um, I loved this movie. I, this was great. I was way better than i was expecting it to be it does all kinds of things i didn't expect why is this movie not more famous i've never heard of this movie other than like the top of the world like i think i've seen that clip out of context but like why is this a movie i had never heard of before uh yeah you're right sam that's probably unanswerable um i i, I think maybe in some ways because it is sui generis in other words Okay, because if we start saying, okay, let's talk about, you know, gangster films, right, everybody goes right to the 1930s. And then, and then you might go to the 1970s and, 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 and you go to Coppola and Scorsese. And I think this film kind of, it, the way that it stands alone, I think in a way maybe makes people a little, little bit forget about it. So mm -hmm. you might get at this film the way we got at it, which is let's watch a Jimmy Cagney film. But you might not get at it if you say, let's watch a gangster film, because it's a little bit out of the gangster mainstream. Absolutely. No, that 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 actually that's a, a pretty good answer to a question that I don't think is possible to answer. Um, but this is the kind of movie that I would um, that I would recommend to somebody, especially if there was somebody who um, 
was interested in a crime film, you know, mm-hmm. or a kind of cops and robbers film and be like, well, this is actually, this is a really great one. Or somebody who like me encountered Cagney through something like Yankee doodle dandy. And if they like that, I said, just wait, you want to see this guy do something totally different. You, you got to see this. Uh, Cause it's, I actually love pairing those two movies together. Um, Yankee doodle dandy is one of my, mm-hmm. one of my favorite um probably one of my favorite musicals because it's it's a very it's a diegetic musical in part it's about a it's about a performer so the music is not they don't break into music numbers as much as this is a guy who breaks into music numbers so i I, and i've always been mesmerized by that performance by the way he ages in that performance Mm -hmm. um over the course of it and and by the way it is also world war ii propaganda yeah you know really fantastic i mean he ends up sitting with roosevelt at the end i love that movie and i love I mean, I think as a, a Cagney double feature, those two, that and White Heat would fit so nicely together because they're so different. And George M. Cohan loved the film and complimented Cagney on it after watching it. So, okay, Sam, before we go, I got to mention one more favorite scene. Uh, maybe it's an anticlimax, but I just love this scene because it seems to me it just expresses everything about what makes Cody Jarrett slash Jimmy Cagney attractive and repulsive at the same time as a character. It's the scene where he's got um, uh, Roy Parker in the trunk of the car. And you think, has he forgotten about Roy Parker in the trunk of the car? And you hear Roy Parker shouting and, and, and Cody goes over, he says, stuffy, huh? And he's munching on the chicken wing. I love that. Yes. He says, I'll give you a little air. <laughs> And then he ventilates him with bullets and walks away, you know, ch- chomping on the chicken wing. To me, that that just expresses so much the way, as, as uh, one, one writer about the film said, the way that Cagney turns screen violence into a macabre charisma. Mm-hmm. And to me, that 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 is Cagney all, all, all over. So well, yeah. it, it, it's it's a great visualization of revenge is a dish best served cold. Because he brought yes. that guy, he got that guy out of his cell broke him out of prison so that he could then later shoot him in that trunk you know so so revenge is a dish best served cold and it's a great side to a chicken wing is what yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right so what do you have for us next week well okay sam so you know a couple of weeks ago um we celebrated the 50th anniversary of godfather so i thought to myself well let's let's dig a little deeper let's do a 100th anniversary so uh, 2022 is the 100th anniversary of the great German uh, silent horror film Nosferatu, which is actually uh, being shown across the, the world right now in a restored version. So I would like to go back to 1922 and, uh, and watch uh, Nosferatu, one of the great horror films. I am so excited for this. I have seen probably the first 20 minutes of this on TV when I was little. I feel like this is a movie people oddly uh, encounter when they're, when they're younger than they should be, but it, but you, you come across and I, uh, yeah. So this is the FW Murnau, right? Yes. Yeah. FW Murnau. Yes. Yeah. With, yeah. Uh, yeah, with Mac, Mac, the, the appropriately named Max Schreck, which Schreck in German means fear. Uh, the appropriately named Max Schreck as Count Orlock. So it's not Dracula, but it is a vampire, but a very different kind of vampire. I am so excited for this. Barrett, thank you for uh, for recommending White Heat. Again, movie I had never heard of. It is now um, it is now a movie that is very important to me. I actually really, really love this uh, love this movie, and it's the kind of movie I would recommend to people 
um, because I think it does some things that I haven't seen in other ways, uh, done in other ways and done with such economy. So, um, so thank you for recommending this. Thank you for the conversation. That is all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about Nosferatu in the video store. Mm-hmm.